All right, I know I know this is not uh, fun. I know this is not great. I know this is uh, very tough, but what I want to do, especially through here, is uh, I don't want to rush things. I want everybody to have all the information needed. Um, I, I've, I've had it with this guy. Uh, what he did is unacceptable. Um, nobody can defend that, and nobody should defend it. In the days after the January 6th riot at the Capitol, Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy wanted to hold former President Donald Trump accountable. The clip we just heard was from a phone call between Minority Leader McCarthy and House Republicans. The call happened four days after Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to overturn the 2020 election results. The audio was obtained and released by the New York Times. But that push for accountability didn't last long. Since then, McCarthy has refused to cooperate with the House committee investigating January 6th, and he called the New York Times reporting on this, quote, totally false and wrong. So how are Republicans thinking about accountability for such a blatant attack on our democratic elections, and how much do voters even care? This conversation is part of our Remaking America project. In it, we explore Americans' trust in our democracy and the institutions critical to its survival. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations, download our 1A Fox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is committed to helping you in times of stress with customized online therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com 1A and see if it helps life feel a little bit easier. We're discussing the recently released private recordings of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy in the aftermath of the Capitol riot. Joining us now is the New York Times' Jonathan Martin. He's one of the reporters behind the McCarthy tapes. He's also the co-author of the new book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Doug High. He's a Republican strategist who was formerly the communications director of the Republican National Committee. He's also He also was deputy chief of staff for former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. Doug, welcome to the program. It's good to be with you. Thank you. So, Jonathan, that phone call happened after the attack on the Capitol. It was also after McCarthy and 146 other congressional Republicans voted not to certify the election in Arizona or Pennsylvania. Give us some more context for the recording we just heard. Sure. Well, this is part of uh, a new book that's just out this week that my colleague Alex Burns and I wrote. Uh, This will not pass. And it's an account of the last two years of American politics, but I think will be uh, uh, one of the most important historical moments um, in the history of a country. And it's so important, I think, because this was a moment in which our democratic system was and is tested in a way that we have not seen in years before. We've always taken a peaceful transfer of power uh, for granted in America. Uh, elections could be hard for 
thought they could be nasty, negative, divisive, but ultimately on January 20th, a new president was sworn in and there was not bloodshed. That's what happened somewhere else. That was for other countries. And here, this time, in this place, it happened in America and it happened in the U.S. Capitol. And that's why it's so important. And in, in the context of that call that you aired is the Republican Party, which has stood four square behind Donald Trump for four years, enabling his norm-breaking, his incendiary, uh, you know, would-be sort of uh, authoritarian conduct, is now reckoning with the fact that he's gone too far in their eyes at last. And what do we do? How do we address what is clearly a political challenge for us in the Republican Party? And also, in that moment, McCarthy's thinking about the possibility of more political violence. So it's really a window into their thinking in those hours and days after January 6th, when at least then the Republican leadership in Congress was thinking about making a break from Trump. When you first heard this, these tapes, Jonathan, how did you know you had something important? You know, I've been in journalism for 15 years, and you kind of know it when you see it and, or you hear it. And obviously, when you have the House Minority Leader who has been perhaps the most obedient supporter of President Trump on Capitol Hill saying, I'm sick of this guy um, and what he did is atrocious and totally wrong, and then musing about asking him to resign, wondering about the 25th Amendment, uh, does that work fast enough? Uh, grappling with how to drive the president from office before his term is up, that you've spent the last four years you know, really sort of coddling or enabling, frankly, um, sort of jumped off the page. And here's the bigger story. I think why this book is important. For seven years, we heard about Republicans, oh, if you only knew what they said in private about Donald Trump, they're so tough on him. They all hate him. We heard that conversation so much. In this book, what we do is we illuminate that massive gulf between the public and the private comments of Republican leaders about Donald Trump. Here's what they actually say about him and think about him behind closed doors. And I think that's an important public service. Well, we did invite Kevin McCarthy to join our conversation today. His office did not respond. Let's listen to a little more tape of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. This is from a private meeting with other Republicans after January 6th. But let me be very clear to all of you, and I've been very clear to the president. He bears responsibilities for his words and actions. No ifs, ands, or buts. I asked him personally today, does he hold responsibility for what happened? Does he feel bad about what happened? He told me he does have some responsibility for what happened, um, and he needs to acknowledge that. Well, Jonathan, you said that the public face of Republican support for former President Trump was, was different from what was happening behind closed doors. How differently were McCarthy and other Republicans speaking publicly? Well, you just heard that tape right there is Kevin McCarthy speaking to the entire House GOP conference. So he's a little more guarded there than he was on the previous clip, which is just he and his fellow House GOP leaders. And in speaking to the entire caucus there, he's talking to a caucus that, you know, was largely pro-Trump, but clearly was shaken by January 6th, and it is looking for some measure of accountability or at least responsibility from President Trump. And McCarthy is suggesting that, it, that, that Trump has told him he bears some responsibility. 
Of course that's fantasy. Trump never took responsibility for January 6th in public or private. To this day, he refuses to do so. And in fact, when we asked Donald Trump in an interview for our book, This Will Not Pass, uh, a few months after he left office, we said, you know, McCarthy was pretty tough on you after January 6th. You know, he claims that he, he confronted you. Trump waved that away. And he said, basically, that's not true. He never told me in private I had to take responsibility. And we said, well, Mr. President, why does he keep saying this um, about you? And Trump said of McCarthy, inferiority complex, which tells you everything about Donald Trump's view of Kevin McCarthy, that that, that loyalty, that fealty uh, is a one-way street between those two men. Doug, Trump and other prominent Republicans have continued promoting the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen. And a December 2021 poll from UMass Amherst found that 70 percent of Republicans still believe the 2020 election was not legitimate. How are you thinking about January 6th and the health of our democracy in light of these recordings? Yeah, you know, that, um, thank you, that, that, what you mentioned is one of those things that is simultaneously shocking and not surprising. Um, one of the things that, you know, Jonathan and I would talk about when I worked for Eric Cantor was that the House Republican Conference is an accurate reflection of their, of their um, voting populace, of, of their voters. And that can be a compliment or it cannot be a compliment depending on your point of view of it. The Republican members right now reflect where their voters are. Their voters, for whatever reason, and this is why Jonathan and Alex wrote their book and why we'll see other books and we'll talk about this for a long time, they are in line with their voters. And it's why these, these tapes were so, again, relevatory, but also not surprising because Republican members reflect where their voters are at. And, and the Kevin McCarthy recordings are you know, a very stark example of that. Moving forward, I don't know where the party goes on this because, or, or if the party goes forward on this, because frankly, there are only two Republican members who are on the January 6th committee. They passed up the opportunity to take it out of the hands of Congress and move it to uh, an independent committee so that it's not political. Um, and they've also decided to not have their own members. It's one of the reasons that the committee has been as effective as it is, and Republicans haven't had any leaks. They don't know what's going on because they're not in the room where it happens. And you're referring there to Cheney and Kinzinger. We got this tweet from William who says, can you ask why these journalists withheld these McCarthy tapes for so long? And Leah sent us this email. If these tapes were so important for the country and our understanding of the state and of our democracy, why did you not write articles about them when you obtained them instead of waiting for your book release? Well, uh, there's been plenty of that kind of commentary, um, and I get it. Uh, it. You know, understandably, our craft uh, is is not easily understood by um, people who just sort of um, see uh, things and make assumptions. I get it. I I think it's a fair question. I would say a couple of things. One. We don't discuss sources as a rule. Um, the I think um, uh, approach to that is pretty common among uh, journalists. You, you keep your sources confidential uh, in uh, circumstances that demand it. I would say generally speaking on the business of reporting, a couple of things. One, when you're talking to people for history – and they have some assurance that what they say is not going to be in the paper the next day or the next week or the next month. It does prompt more candor, um, especially from political actors. 
who were ever conscious of how their comments are going to appear politically. And so I think you have to look at it with that perspective, that people are always more willing to speak honestly uh, if, if they know it's not going to be uh, reported immediately, if they have some distance. And then secondly, and again, generally speaking here, the reporting itself is not some neat exercise uh, in which you have things automatically given to you. You sort of hold your hand out and um, – material is dropped in your in, in the palm of your hands, it's a much more complex uh, grind, if you will, um, where, you know, reporters get tips, they hear things secondhand, they, they pick up gossip, and they have to chase things down. And that takes time. Uh, it is not, it is not uh, a sort of fairy tale exercise that perhaps you've seen uh, in movies. It, it is a, as Doug knows, it is a much more complicated and not, not, not terribly glamorous uh, craft. But in the, in the time that it takes to do a series of articles and the time that it takes to publish a book, was there some thought about maybe saying, hey, we need to do some articles on this too? A book and the whole publishing process can come later, but this isn't too important to hold back um, as as a book moves through that process. Look, I think it's a fair question. Um, you know, we just don't talk about sourcing and the nature and circumstances of when material uh, was obtained. Um, I'm just not going to get into that because it, it's a it's a very convoluted process, and it's not some neat, uh, you know, uh, matter of we woke up one day and on the doorstep there there was some gift. It, it, it's a much more complicated question, and I think, frankly, the critique that that we get um, sort of ignores that fact that people don't know the circumstances of how and when we obtained various material, and so I think if you don't know that, then you can't make sort of assumptions about about the material. Well, let's listen to another part of a phone call from the days after the January 6th attack. It's between McCarthy and House Republican Whip Steve Scalise from Louisiana and some House aides. And they refer again to Representative Gates from Florida, as well as Alabama Representative Mo Brooks. Okay, the other thing I want to bring up, and I'm making some phone calls to some members, um, I just I just got something sent now about Newsmax, something Matt Gates said where he's calling people's names out, saying an anti-Trump in this type of uh, atmosphere than um, some of the other places. This is, this is serious stuff people are doing that has to stop. Um, I'll make individual yeah, I think Mo, Mo and, uh, and Louie's comments, too, a lot of members have said some real concerning things about... Did they say something, did they say something today, too? Not that Louie was at... I mean, um, Mo was at the rally, you know, the we're, we're kicking ass and taking names thing. At the Trump rally, uh, well, these are the things right before they kick that out. Okay, wait, I, what did Gates say? I, did Gates say uh, Gates brought up Liz specifically? I just saw yeah. that on Twitter. Someone just sent it. Um, Gonzalez just sent it to me, so I'm calling Gates. I'm explaining to him. I don't know how to say, but I'm going to have some other people call him too. But the nature of what, if I'm getting briefing, I'm going to get another one from the FBI tomorrow. Uh, this is serious to cut this out. Yeah, that's that, that's that's. Uh, oh, I mean, it's potentially illegal what he's doing. Well, he's putting people in jeopardy, and he, he doesn't need to be doing this. He, we we saw what people would do in the Capitol, um, you know, and these people came prepared with rope with everything else. 
McCarthy struck a different tone when speaking to lawmakers during a meeting of the GOP conference on January 11th, 2021. Later after this call, I'm going to get another briefing from the FBI. And it doesn't matter which side of the position you were. I respect it. I respect why you did what you did. But what we're saying on television, when we say a member's name, when we incite or we, in our hearts, maybe we think we aren't doing it, but you go back the last four years, everybody has done something. This is not the moment in time to do it. The briefings that I'm getting, you can incite something else. The country is very divided as we know this. Let's not put any member, I don't care who they are, Republican, Democrat, or any person not even in Congress, watch our words closely. I get these reports on a weekly basis. I've seen something I haven't seen before. So I'm asking all of you, I've called some of you personally, um, and I want you to know what I'm hearing. Um, Be careful. I know you want to defend your vote. You want to defend your position. And sometimes we get emotional about that. And part of our defense is that we explain where somebody else was at. That brings damage. Do not raise another member's name on a television, even if they're in a different position or not. Let's respect one another, and you, you probably won't understand what you're doing, and I'm just warning you right now, don't do it. Don't do it in this time, and let's prepare for the future not to do it as well. Jonathan, briefly, you have hours of recordings. Why did these moments stand out to you? You just really captured an important contrast, which is the Kevin McCarthy speaking to his fellow House GOP leaders, where he's much more confrontational about people like Matt Gates, that far-right member of the House from Florida, and then the Kevin McCarthy when he's speaking to the entirety of the House GOP caucus when, of course, he's more conciliatory and diplomatic. And I think, obviously, the reason for that is McCarthy's trying to walk this tightrope. He knows he needs the votes of people like Gates on the far right uh, uh, sort of lane of his caucus to become speaker next year if they get back to the majority. So he has to be much more of a diplomat when he's talking about taking the temperature down, when he's talking to to what he thinks uh, are only the ears of his fellow GOP leaders. He can castigate Gates uh, like he did there and suggest he's going to have a a conversation with Gates and tell him what's what. Uh, This also reflects Kevin McCarthy, which is he really wants to be liked and he wants to be all things to all people. And, you know, obviously that can be difficult when you have to be a leader and make tough decisions and you have to tell people things they don't want to hear. And it's a lot easier for Kevin McCarthy to say in private he's going to confront Donald Trump or Matt Gates uh, than it is for Kevin McCarthy to actually do that. Doug, ultimately, how do you see the revelations from these tapes playing into the upcoming midterm elections, if at all? Uh, I don't. And, you know, interestingly, you know, with the news that we've had um, just over the past few days about the Supreme Court, it's not clear to me that that's going to play a major role either. It, It may play a role in exciting some Democrats. But what we see... And when we see the inflation rising uh, constantly, when we see rising crime, um, the situation at the border, that seems to be what voters are first and foremost having in their minds and what they're most likely going to react to. We'll continue discussing the fallout from the recordings of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. A 
Let's get back to our conversation about the newly revealed phone calls between Kevin McCarthy and other GOP leadership during the aftermath of the Capitol riot. They were recently published by the New York Times. We invited McCarthy to join today's conversation, but he did not respond to our request. We wanted to know what voters in McCarthy's district had to say, so we asked KVPR, the NPR member station for Central California. KVPR covers most of McCarthy's district, and we've teamed up with them as part of our Remaking America project to find out how our democracy is working or not for the San Joaquin Valley. My name is B, calling from Visalia, California, regarding Kevin McCarthy. Extremely disappointed. Plan not to vote for him. My name is Marco. I'm calling from Bakersfield. I didn't vote for him in the past, but I might vote for him now. I want to vote for someone who tells the truth and for whom telling the truth and being honorable is more important than being expedient. I think it would be nice to keep him in office now that he's shown that he doesn't like Trump, and I'm hoping it would encourage other Republicans to do the same and learn that they don't have to depend on Trump to win elections. B. Marco, thanks for those messages. And Robert Price is joining us now from Bakersfield, California. He's a newspaper columnist with the Bakersfield Californian. Robert, welcome to the program. Good morning. Robert, what have you been hearing from people in your community in response to January 6th and these recordings? Well, pretty much the same thing I think all of your listeners have been hearing, uh, which is that we are uh, a little bit stunned, but not really, uh, to hear that McCarthy uh, was initially, you know, sort of outraged and very concerned about what uh, has happened, uh, what happened on January 6th, and now it has you know, sort of turned around and come to the realization that he is not going anywhere without Donald Trump. And uh, and we've heard him, you know, flip before, I think back to when uh, uh, the Jeff Sessions recusal uh, thing was in the news and McCarthy went on um, a talk show and initially said, yes, absolutely, Jeff Sessions should recuse himself. Two hours later goes on Fox News, perhaps after having taken a phone call from a certain someone saying, you know, you people are not paying attention to what I just said. Uh, so, I mean, he's, uh, you know, pretty pliable when it comes to things like that. Give us a quick rundown of your region and specifically the district that Kevin McCarthy represents. How would you describe the area? Well, it is a, uh, I call it, um, uh, you know, a red island in a, in a blue state, um, probably the reddest part of the bluest state in the country. And, um, you know, I've, I've known McCarthy for probably 30 years. Our kids went to school together. Uh, I actually, you know, socialized with him, you know, many years ago, and I've kind of seen him uh, over the over the course of the years uh, change uh, from a f- kind of a friendly, outgoing guy to someone who has the weight of the caucus now on his shoulders. But he's dealt with things like this before. You know, early on, he was the head of the National uh, Young Republicans and was dealing with some um, some backbiting, some division in in his little caucus there. And um, that's where he is again. And I think maybe he's called upon some of those same skills or tried to, to bring the caucus together. And uh, this is a little bit different than the young young Republicans. Now, you said this is a red island in a blue state. Can you give us some background on the demographics of the area? Uh, Well, it is, uh, like the rest of California, uh, increasingly um, uh, Latino. Um, It's... uh, I think now a majority, Kern County, is now a majority uh, Latino uh, county. And um, 
Bakersfield itself has actually become a little bit more blue, um, but the county itself, a very rural county otherwise, remains, uh, you know, pretty conservative. And how has McCarthy's district changed with recent redistricting? Uh, It's actually slightly more, uh, slightly redder than it was before. Um, He's uh, moved up into a little bit of uh, Fresno County and a little bit to the east, and it's slightly, he he actually had some, uh, he's never had a serious contender. Uh, This time it looked like he might have had a couple people who could get the Democratic National Committee to give him some money. And then the redistricting came along and it became a little bit redder and those folks dropped out. And he's pretty solid once again. Well, let's play another message from a California voter. This is Jack. I believe very strongly that the only reason Kevin McCarthy backed away from his condemnation of President Trump regarding the 1-6 insurrection was he found out how many of his caucus were actually involved in the plot to change the results of the election. I think every one of those uh, members of Congress who had any role in trying to send fake electors or change vote counts or any of those election integrity measures need to resign or be forced from Congress. And I think there should be a number of them indicted and charged with uh, obstructing a government process. Jack, thanks for that message. And we should mention here again that 147 Republican members of Congress did vote not to certify the election. But Doug, how would you respond to Jack? He raises an important point that a lot of members uh, or a fair number of Republicans were at the rally, were inciting the crowd, Mo Brooks being a good example, who Trump backed initially in his Senate campaign before rescinding that endorsement. Kevin is is very finely attuned to um, his caucus. And where they are is ultimately where he's going to be. And if we were having this conversation about any other issue, you could say the same thing. Where his conference is, is where Kevin's going to be. When he was whip, he was seen more as a poll taker than a whip in the Tom DeLay mode of going and getting the votes. He was more trying to find out where the votes were um, more than trying to change them. And so as we move forward, as, as Republicans look to take back the House and Kevin potentially being in a good place to become the next speaker, he is not going to move from that spot of being where his members are. Well, I think it also has caused uh, quite a few Americans to to question the stability of our democracy, something that does affect all of us. Let's hear from another one of you. This is Tamara. I have heard the recordings of Kevin McCarthy after the insurrection, and I'm mostly surprised that he caved to the Trumpism, quote unquote, that has overwritten what used to be a Republican Party. I'm currently surprised that he's not being held accountable by his own members and he's continuing to suck up to them. Thanks for that message, Tamara. Doug, what would you say to to Tamara there, you know, mentioning that she's surprised that McCarthy, as she said, caved to the Trumpism that has overwritten what used to be the Republican Party? Well, I don't think it should be a surprise that any Republican member of Congress falls in line with Donald Trump. You know, as we've seen, there are really only two who haven't on the question of January 6th. Most of them would prefer to not talk about it, but it's Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger who are the real people standing out and standing up to Donald Trump on this this issue. And it's why I think, you know, Kevin made a a strategic mistake in not either going completely independent for an independent committee um, investigating January 6th or 
basically nominating people who Nancy Pelosi was sure to to dare or was sure to reject and trying to dare Pelosi to do it. It means that Republicans don't have a real voice in that room. They don't support Liz Cheney. They don't support Adam Kinzinger. And so they don't have anybody who's affecting what's happening at the committee. We can certainly argue that's a good thing. But they also aren't hearing exactly what's going on. And so as we get more revelations, more subpoenas are issued and so forth, um, Republicans are going to be caught flat-footed by this. And their response is always going to be the same thing. Say we've moved on, it, it's in, in the past, it doesn't matter, and then focus on why Joe Biden is, is unpopular in the country. Robert, what issues are you hearing uh, are important to voters in the Bakersfield area for the upcoming midterm? Uh, you know, when I talked to McCarthy just about a week ago, uh, it, it was we spent very little time on the on the tapes, uh, very little time on January 6th. It was about uh, immigration. It was about securing the borders. Uh, you know, he brought in fentanyl, which is something that I've covered a lot. Uh, but he pointed to the border as being uh, the reason that fentanyl has become such a, a big problem in the in the country. Uh, he is going to those go-to issues that Republicans have always uh, been attracted to. So that's what he's running on. But does that reflect the concerns of voters in Bakersfield? I, I think it does. I think it does. I think as, as been, has been discussed here today, um, a lot of Republicans just don't want to hear about January 6th. They really don't seem to care. Um, and uh, border is uh, number one. And that, um, you know, effectively distracts. It has that double uh, power of uh, distracting people from January the 6th, talking about those key things, inflation, uh, gas prices. Those are the go-to topics for him. Doug, as we, we wait for the January 6th uh, House Select Committee to issue its, its final report, what will you be watching for specifically? Uh, I want to hear more about who did what. And that, by and large, is within the Trump administration. Um, people like Mark Meadows. Uh, what did they do? What, it, it's the old line that we say, you know, what did somebody know and when did they know it? In this case, what did they do and when did they do it? And this is why I think Jonathan and Alex's book is so important, is for us to learn all of this. This is an ongoing thing. January 6th isn't a day that's in our history. It's ongoing. And so, you know, as more and more gets reported from this, as the committee learns more and more, um, it's going to be very important, I think, for history. It's not going to have a big impact on our elections. It's just not. Um, there are too many other things going on that really occupy every day, every day for, for Americans. Uh, but for history, um, we need to know more of what happened. And that's why what the committee is doing is so important. You mentioned Alex. That's Alexander Burns, the co-author of the book and co-reporter, along with Jonathan Martin, the national political correspondent from the New York Times. Their book is This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. And we've been talking to Doug High. He's a Republican strategist. He was formerly the communications director of the Republican National Committee. He was also deputy chief of staff for former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor and Robert Price, a columnist for the newspaper, The Bakersfield Californian. Doug, Robert, thanks to you both. This conversation is part of our Remaking America collaboration with KVPR in Central California, where we explore the institutions critical to our democracy's survival. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was Avery J.C. Kleinman. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.